this way of working is really fun. You have to collect all these examples and you sort of, you stay up all night, of course, and you, you look for them. And sometimes we think of it as a, a treasure hunt. It's like you're looking for these little treasures, these words, and you collect them and then you try to order them and try to see how they all fit. That's what we, what we do. And the treasure hunt leads you also to a map. What ancient DNA has given us is if we stay in our own field, we, we can collect all these treasures, but But it's only now that we get a whole new map and new places to go look for other treasures. You know, it's really a treasure map. So we can continue the hunt in new places, ask new questions. Welcome to SCAS Talks, the podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In these coming episodes, we have a closer look at the study of language and the different aspects of that. My name is Nathalie von Delier, and in this episode I talk to Jenny Larsson, professor of Baltic linguistics at Stockholm University. She has also been a scholar here at SCAS in the academic year of 2018-2019. And a couple of years ago, I had the pleasure to talk to Jenny Larsson for another podcast And there she told me about her plans to start interdisciplinary research collaboration on the spread and origin of the Indo-European languages in prehistoric times. I was then very pleased to find out that she and her colleagues actually got financing from Riksbanken's Jubileumsfond to carry out this project in collaboration with the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, where we are now. So welcome, Jenny, to this podcast. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? I'm Jenny, and like you said, I work as a professor of Baltic languages in Stockholm. And I'm also currently working on the LAMP project, which we will get back to, I'm sure. And I have a background in comparative Indo-European linguistics. So I've studied all kinds of ancient languages and mythologies. But I have specialized in the Baltic or maybe Balto-Slavic languages and also mythology. And I've been looking into the Baltic mythology lately. So that's what I was doing when I was a fellow at SCAS here. And because the Baltic mythology is not very well known, people tend to know a lot about Norse mythology or Greek and Roman mythology, but they don't know very much about the gods and the myths of our neighboring Baltic countries. So, so that's something I'd like to change. So let's jump to research then, the exciting stuff. What is LAMP, this project? So LAMP, that's a, it's an interdisciplinary research project. So LAMP is short for Languages and Myths of Prehistory. And it's my dream project. It has been for a while now, because I've been thinking a lot about how we can combine the new evidence from ancient DNA with archaeology and mythology and historical linguistics. So I'm very happy that Riksbanker's Jubileumsfond has decided to fund this project. And I'm also very glad that, to have established a collaboration with SCAS, the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Studies, where we are now, uh, within the framework of the LAMP project. So, and SCAS really provides the perfect setting for an interdisciplinary project of this kind. But about the project, so we're interested in how the Indo-European languages spread to Europe and to parts of Eurasia. So the Indo-European language family is a large Uh, language family, and it includes English, of course, and German, Russian, Urdu, and so on. Almost three billion humans speak languages belonging to the Indo-European 
So we find these languages over a very large area, and they are all related to each other. But how did they get there, and what caused these languages to start spreading, and, and how? Sort of how did it all happen? And that's, these are the questions that, that we want to at least try to <laughs> answer somehow, or find some answers to, because they, they still have no answer, really. And I guess, well, in order to answer such broad and difficult questions, we will need to combine evidence and material from several different disciplines. Basically, what we want to do is to correlate the linguistic data with the archaeological material and the genetic maps of prehistoric migrations in order to be able to sort of track the spread of languages in prehistory. That's the project. <laughs> Very exciting. It's like going back to, to the beginning yeah. of language. Yeah, yeah, I'm super excited, of course. Mm -hmm. So you said that this is interdisciplinary and you've included a lot of different experts and disciplines and which are they? What do you need for this project? Yeah, so we're trying to combine linguistics, mythology and archaeology with studies in ancient DNA, actually. So we're a group of researchers then with different backgrounds and some of us are linguists and some scholars are working with mythology and history of religions. And then the archaeologists who then in turn work closely with the labs where, where they test ancient DNA. And so we have three fundamental, fundamental questions in our project. So first of all, it's how do they talk, right? So this is the question for the linguists. And they will try to reconstruct the sounds and the grammar and the vocabulary of the different prehistoric language stages that must have occurred sort of gradually when these languages began to spread out to a larger area. And the second question is, what did they talk about? Because we're not only interested in what language they spoke and how it sounded, but we also want to know what these prehistoric people were talking about, what, what stories they told and, and sort of what they believed in, what kind of rituals they were doing, that sort of thing. So for this, uh, we will need to combine then mytho mythology and archaeology and some linguistics as well. And then the final question, of course, is a very important one, is how can we know? So, so this has to do with our methods and how we can develop new methods by combining different disciplines like archaeolinguistics, where we combine reconstructed words with material remains, and archaeomythology, because the mythologies are often mirrored in the material culture and in language as well, of course. So it, it's one big combination, really, where you have to try to look at everything at once. I'd also like to uh, mention the mythopoetic method, because uh, it's a method that has gained some interest recently because of the book published by Calvert Watkins, How to Kill a Dragon, Aspects of Indo-European Poetics. And this method is really interesting, and I've been working with it myself, actually, for the last couple of years. That's what I was doing when I was a fellow here at SCAS before I got the, the project. So I was looking into Baltic ancient poetry and early mythology, And in the Baltic countries, uh, there are some very interesting folk songs, dainas, they're called. And these songs have been orally transmitted for a long time, so they have preserved some really ancient traits. And probably because they often sort of follow a strict metrical structure, so they couldn't easily be changed or altered. And it's a very interesting material to work with, and it's a little bit like Homeric poetry, which is also like this, because you have this very strict metrical structure, the hexameter, right? Which means that... A lot of things have been preserved, a lot of ancient forms and poetic expressions. And some of these old poetic expressions seem to go very far back, sometimes all the way back to core Indo-European languages uh, or the core Indo-European language. 
So with this method, we can try to use linguistic material extracted from ancient poetry to try to reconstruct parts of the Indo-European poetry and mythology. So it's almost possible to sort of listen in on some of these <laughs> mythological tales that were told when they sat by the fire at night. I mean, I like to think of it like that. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of disciplines now and also a little bit of the study of uh, ancient uh, DNA. There we get into my area of expertise. So in the last decade and more than that, we have seen a very fast development in the field of genetics and genomics um, to sequence DNA, whole organisms, and now also ancient DNA, where we can, or not we personally, but scientists can extract uh, DNA from human remains, quite old human remains, and sequence that. And this information has given quite some clues about our history, how people migrated and also mixed with each other when they met. And how can you inc incorporate this information from these kind of studies into your own research? It's a good question. It's so exciting. So much has been happening and, and so fast, right? It's, it's amazing. It's for me as a linguist, it's really an exciting time because suddenly we have access to information about prehistoric humans that we could only have dreamt about, right, just a few years ago. And one of these things that I never thought that would be possible was, of course, to get some maps, actual maps of prehistoric migrations. And now we have them. So much is happening, so it's really interesting. And one of our team members, Professor David Anthony, He was a co-author on, on one of the groundbreaking articles from 2015, where they used ancient DNA to show that there must have been a massive migration from the Yamnaya culture on the Pontic steppe into Europe in the early Bronze Age. So in 2015, two independent studies appeared in the same issue of Nature, Haak et al. and Allentoft et al. And they both pointed to this striking genetic similarity between skeletons from the Yamnaya culture on the steppes, and then the later corded ware culture in Europe. So the Yamnaya culture was an early Bronze Age archaeological culture on the Ukrainian and South Russian steppes around 3000 BC. And then the corded ware culture is a later archaeological culture in Central Europe. But still, these two cultures could be shown to be genetically very similar, despite being 2,600 kilometers apart. So for the first time, it was possible to use this ancient DNA to clarify how the corded ware culture originated, namely through a rapid and massive migration from the steppe to central and northern Europe. And this is, of course, something that we couldn't even have imagined would ever, ever be possible. It's really remarkable. And then these maps of migrations that could be established on the basis of genetics correlate extremely well with the linguistic evidence. But of course, there is no obvious link between genes and languages. So this must always be said. And it's, it's very important, of course, because the genes themselves cannot tell us anything about what language a person spoke. And languages can change independently of genes, of course. So, so there's not a one-to-one -one relationship here. But what we do get, at least, is information that there has been massive migrations of prehistoric people, and we can follow all these migrations in close detail. To imagine any prehistoric migration at all used to be very hard for some scholars, and now we suddenly have all these details maps. And uh, I should say there's some, some other studies, because these are, I mean, things are moving very fast in the world of ancient DNA, and so much is happening, and it's really interesting. 
And there has been a lot of studies confirming these older studies and also adding new information, of course. And then earlier this year, for example, there was another genetic study by Rasimo et al., where human ancient DNA was correlated with vegetation data. So they combined the ancient DNA with geostatistical techniques, and they could show that the spread of Yamnaya-related people from the steppes was very fast and brought with it huge changes in the vegetation as well. So that's another clue for us. It's, there's so many, so many studies that are relevant and interesting for us. Things are moving very fast, and I, I feel really lucky <laughs> to be part of this huge sort of paradigm shift, actually, that is, is happening right now. It's very dramatic, really, and it, it really opens up for a whole new way of thinking and new questions to ask, basically. Some answers, but also a lot of new questions, right? Yes, of course. I was also thinking what you said, it's a paradigm shift right now. Has there been any conflicts or clashes over these new results that you know, people either confirmed the hypothesis or had to um, think differently, think new? Well, the thing is that for us who work in historical linguistics, the idea of mig migrating people has always been sort of considered one of the most plausible reasons for linguistic spread, right? So we've always thought that there was probably some kind of migration that brought with it the Indo-European languages. Just look at how the English language spread to, to the American continent, for example. So it's, it's one of the very plausible scenarios, but it has been really difficult to find scholars in archaeology, for example, I mean... Earlier, it was harder to, to discuss these things. It was hard to agree on, uh, on the basics about these things. That uh, Yeah, basically, a lot of um, scholars were saying that there had... A lot of scholars in archaeology were saying that there were no migrations in prehistoric times. And then and it was just hard to, to discuss these things back then. But, you know, it's an ongoing discussion. We'll see where it takes us. But as a linguist, I'm very happy to see the migrations. And, and now we can try to see if we can correlate language to some of these movements. That's all we want to do. <laughs> I think even for geneticists, this is, these are very exciting times. And you can see a lot from the DNA, even though it's not... Or some people refer to it as a, as a language as well, with four letters. But of course, it's not a <laughs> spoken language. It's very beautiful. So as we just mentioned, these are really exciting times for a lot of scholars. But are there any dangers in this kind of studies that connect genetics with culture and language? Yes, there are dangers. And it's important to be aware of this, of course, because whenever we talk about genetics in the context of culture and language, we risk misinterpretation of our research. And these studies in nature about agent DNA and migrations, the ones that we discussed earlier, Uh, have actually been criticized for equating people with culture in a way that is too simplistic. And while I have no doubt that they are essentially right in their conclusions, they do perhaps not always have the space to reflect on the full complexity of the past and of human prehistory. But this is where the LAMP project can actually fill an important gap, I think, because we have the privilege of being able to approach the complexity of past human interactions in a much broader sense. But we must always remember that the histories of our fields, both archaeology and Indo-European studies, are intertwined with the histories of nationalism, colonialisms, and even racism. 
But of course, and I really want to stress this because there is a lively ongoing scholarly debate about these things and about the implications of the results of genomic studies of this kind. But I think we need to be better at reaching out beyond our scholarly fields. And also when it comes to discussing these problematic issues, of course, and, and we need to become better at communicating and communicating all these complexities that surrounding ethnicity and migration. And there was actually an article that came out last year by Susan Hagenbeck at Cambridge University, and it's called Genetics, Archaeology, and the Far Right, an Unholy Trinity. And it's an excellent article, and it really addresses many of these problems that we face when doing this kind of research. So, for example, she talks about the presumptions that are made just by labeling the DNA samples because when we take small numbers of samples of individuals as representative of social or cultural groups, there is an implicit assumption that social or cultural groups must be genetically homogenous, which is of course not the case. And we need to be aware of these implicit assumptions when we work with this kind of material. And another main point that she, she has in her article is that we need to become better at communicating with the general public. And I totally agree. I cannot stress this enough. And that's also why we are so lucky to have Karin Boyce on our team in the LAMP project. Because Hakenbeck, she actually mentions Karin Boyce's book, uh, My European Family, as an excellent example of a publication that is aimed at a more general audience but where the complexity of human ancestry is really emphasized and where also the dangers of racist interpretations of genomic data is addressed in an exceptionally good way. But of course, we have to be constantly aware of the public impact of our work. And we have to be transparent about the complexities of the research process and the limits of our interpretations. This is particularly important in cases where research results are controversial or easily slotted into far-right or racist discourse. Yes, so we should mention that Karin Boyce is a Swedish science journalist who is very interested in your project, Jenny. And Karin Boyce has written, just as you mentioned, the book called My European Family and will help you with outreach within the LAMP project. But we will come back to outreach a little bit later in this episode. Yeah, so we talked a little about but the different disciplines and the uh, introduction of uh, genetics, ancient DNA, into your area. So now you have all these different disciplines in this uh, LAMP project. And of course, it's a huge thing and a broad approach. You've already said that yourself. And how do you actually organize that? How do you get everything together and uh, work towards a common goal? Yeah, there are some challenges now. <laughs> Well, like I mentioned before, SCAS really provides a very stable framework for our co collaborations. So during the project, we will be returning to SCAS regularly in order to work together and have joint seminars and organize conferences with international, international guests and that sort of thing. So SCAS really provides the perfect setting for the project. But if we want to answer such big questions about humanity and, and our prehistory, I think this is the only way forward, right, to work together. And it's also with all these exciting things going on in the natural sciences, I really think that we are at a point in time when it's necessary to try to break down the, the barriers between the traditional fields and even between the humanities and the natural science. So 
So we need to be able to work together and dare to sort of go beyond our traditional disciplinary boundaries. You're a bunch of scientists involved in this project. You're the principal investigator and then you have gathered people around you who do different parts and are experts in different fields. And you even, I mean, you don't sit physically together all the time. You're in different locations, somewhere in Denmark yeah. and so on. And so how do you get um, a project like this to work well together, not everybody sitting in their own little room doing their thing, but really working together? That is what yeah. I'm interested in. No, but that's what I meant with the framework that SCAS provides. Because we have to meet each other, right? That's super important. Because it's only when we meet that we get all these aha moments. We present our material to each other. And then the archaeologists will say like, oh, but that's, we have the same impression. We have noticed the same thing in our material. But they have been looking at material remnants, right? Archaeological findings and stuff. And we have been... Uh, the linguists have been working on just with the words and then it all fits together. So, so, so communication, of course, is very important, but we can't meet all the time. And then this year, of course, Zoom has been <laughs> helping us a lot. So we've had a lot of um, Zoom discussions and, and that sort of thing. But we did have a kickoff seminar in Copenhagen before the COVID-19, which was very, very nice. But also this question, I don't know, with how you... Create, how you can sort of create a good environment. How do you do it? Or what is your definition of a good interdisciplinary research environment and also research culture? Yeah. How do you achieve it? I really thought a lot about this. What creates or how can we create a sort of a creative environment and how can we facilitate communication be between the different scholars and with different backgrounds? Because it's hard sometimes. We speak different languages, like you said, right? Sometimes. If someone says they only speak DNA, then, and I only speak Proto-Indo-European, then we, we, we need to begin somewhere, right? No, I'm just kidding. But it's important to have to create an open atmosphere, so without too much prestige, obviously, and there needs to be this respect for each other and for each other's disciplines. And I have some experience, like I say, in this area. For example, I was chair of the Young Academy of Sweden a few years ago. This academy is a truly interdisciplinary academy where young scholars come from very different fields and they get to meet and then have to work together in different ways, right? And that was a very valuable experience for me. A lot of fun, of course, but I also learned a lot about how important it is to listen to each other and to be open to other views than one's own. And sometimes it's, it can really be quite difficult to communicate. It takes a while before you understand where the other person is coming from. And another such environment is SCAS, of course. That's what SCAS is all about, right? To, to provide an opportunity for researchers to meet across disciplines. And when I was a fellow here, that was the part that impressed me the most, that it was a very creative environment. And we were talking about everything Uh, all the time with, uh, among the fellows. So it was really, really great. So it's in, important to, to create these spaces where you can meet and to make sure that it's an open atmosphere and then, and then you can, yeah, you have to be aware that it can be difficult to communicate sometimes. But as long as there's a mutual respect and an openness for new ideas, I, I think it should be fine. And then, of course, in my group, we're all learning a lot uh, from each other. So I've been reading a lot of difficult articles about ancient DNA, for example. So it's fun to learn. It's fun to learn all these new things. And it's been really interesting to discuss 
the, the linguistic findings and see what the archaeologists have and sort of we have often, like I said, we have these aha moments because we've all independently reached the same conclusions just based on different material. That happens a lot, actually. And then the material just fits together. So that's really great. Do you also have the opposite, that you have moments where you think like, wait a moment, this doesn't fit, doesn't, doesn't make sense. <laughs> what happens then? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly like that, but we have moments, or not moments, but it's sometimes hard to understand where someone else is coming from, right? It's, it takes a while, and sometimes, I mean, that's the, the normal way of thinking, right? You, you instinctively say, like, what? No, they're basing it on the wrong thing, and they, they have no idea what they're talking about. So that's what we're really trying to avoid, because that's the instinct, almost, among researchers. So this project has been ongoing now for, for this year, right? Can you give an example of something that you're working on? Yeah, sure. So we've actually recently published a book within the LAMP project. It's called The Great Indo-European Horse Sacrifice, and it was written by Anders Kalif and Terje Östigord. And this was actually one of those aha moments, in a way, for our, our group. Because when we began talking about the Indo-Europeans and their relationship to horses and to ritual and about rituals. And it all really just fitted very well together. And Anders Kalif then told us about the many archaeological findings of horse sacrifices on the steppes, for example, and then all the way through Europe and here in Scandinavia as well. And there's a lot written about horse sacrifices in the earliest texts. So, for example, there's a ritual that is described in great detail in one of the oldest texts written in Sanskrit, the Ashwamedha ritual. So the ritual takes place when there's a new king and he's about to claim his kingdom. And I should warn you, this ritual is it's a bit strange. So, so for this ritual, they need a strong horse. And so they find the strongest horse in the kingdom and it's ritually prepared and then led to the king and queen. And then comes the strange bit. So the queen was then expected to ritually copulate with the stallion and after this ceremonial sort of sexual ritual the horse was cut up into pieces and then eaten by the king and I guess to really consume the strength of this horse and so this is of course rather bizarre but also very specific and when we find such precise descriptions of rituals we are always very happy <laughs> because uh, when a very Similar ritual also then appears in another Indo-European-speaking culture, in this case among the Celts, over a thousand years later, at the other end of the world, right? So the Celts and in India and in, in Ireland, it becomes very intriguing. And, and in the, it, there's a medieval text about the Celts where we find a nearly identical account of the same ritual. So the situation is the same. A new king is about to take his throne a horse is ritually prepared and led to the king and queen, and then the king performs the sexual ritual with the horse, which is then cut up and into pieces and eaten by the king. So these two accounts are extremely similar, even though they're found in at different ends of the world and a thousand years apart. And such striking similarity indicates a common origin, I think. And this is then strengthened by the archaeological evidence because remains of such ritual horse sacrifices can be found then on the steps. And, and then we find similar sacrifices in almost all attested Indo-European-speaking cultures and also here in Scandinavia. And all this is described in the book, right? But I think this 
example really shows how important it is to combine material from different types of sources when we're looking at such sort of complex cultural phenomena. It's helpful that people did strange things in ancient times. <laughs> and wrote it down, yes, and were specific with what they did. But that's the great thing about rituals, because they're often recorded quite notoriously, because for the next person to be able to do the same thing, you have to be quite specific. It would be fun to get into some details, a little bit nerdiness here. Sure, I'm up for that. So how do you actually do? You want to reconstruct the Indo-European language, the, like the root for all the Indo-European languages that we have today and that have been during time. So how do you reconstruct a language that doesn't exist any longer? Yeah, well, you have to start with the attested sources, right? What we have, the oldest texts. You have to find the oldest attested sources and read them and study them. You have to actually start by learning a lot of languages. So you have to study Latin and Greek and Sanskrit. Obviously, these are the sort of the oldest things. And then Hittite, Tocharian as well, of course. And then all kinds of old languages, Gothic, Old Irish, Old Norse, Old High German, Old English, Old Church Slavic, Avesta, and Old Prussian, you know, all, all of them. So you study a lot. You study all the texts and you learn the grammar. So it's kind of a slow start, I must admit. It's not something you just can jump into. But it gets easier after you learn a few languages. And then after you've studied a couple, you begin to sort of recognize traits because they're all related. So, so the grammar is not that different, actually. And then you begin to recognize these patterns. But still, it takes a, a bit of time before you get to the good stuff, the good stuff, which is when you begin to see the bigger patterns and you begin to see the similarities and you can collect clues and you can find things that no one else has maybe thought about, and which is the goal, of course, to be able to see the systematic changes and the recurring patterns. But okay, let's take an example. So if you want to reconstruct a word, first you must find a good word. You can't just uh, take something new like an airplane or a computer, and not a loan word, but something old and stable like an animal, for example. For example, the mouse has always been around, probably was around already 5,000 years ago among the Indo-European speakers. Okay, so what would the word for mouse be in Proto-Indo-European? Or more importantly, how do we find out, right? We have to start by checking then, of course, the oldest attested sources. So in ancient Greek, it's mis, in Sanskrit, it's mus, Latin mus. And already now we see a bit of a pattern. And then you can check some later languages like Old Church Slavic, where it's mus, and Old High German moose, right? Old Norse, it's moose. So this word hasn't changed much at all, actually. So we can reconstruct it as moose in Proto-Indo-European, which is not far from Swedish moose either, right? However, in English, it's not moose, but it's mouse. So it has a different vowel. It has a diphthong. And this is a bit unexpected, but it's also still systematic. So that's the interesting thing. So if you compare then English to Swedish, you see this pattern. So moose, mouse, whose, house, loose, louse, and so on. So, and this is, it's exactly this kind of pattern that we're looking for, because it shows that sound change is systematic. It's just not just one individual word changing, but it's a whole chain. It's a system. Well, I, I can't tell you more about this systematic change because it's really the, the core of the comparative method somehow. Because there, there can, 
not be any exceptions from such a sound change, right? So, and that's why we talk about sound laws, because they are like the law. They happen every time without any exception. And these sound laws are often named after the researcher who found them. And so you have Werner's law in Germanic, right? After Karl Werner, you have Grassmann's law in Greek and in the Iranian, Brockmann's law and so on. There's many, many laws, so many laws of Indo-European. Actually, there was someone who posted about this on Twitter recently and said that he had made this observation that almost none of all these sound laws have been attributed to any female scholars. And of course, there's a historical reason for this. But it's also another thing, because you do not name these laws yourself. Someone else has to take the research you put forward and then begin to refer to it as a law. So that's how they get established. But most of these are old and have been, been around for a long time. But what about you then? You sit and study all these different languages. Have you found any law? Um, yeah. When I wrote my PhD thesis, I was actually lucky enough to spot one of those sort of systematic changes, right? But in the Baltic languages. The short version is that certain vowels have been lengthened in connection with a change in accentuation, an accent retraction, and we call this metatony. But this was one of these cases when you sort of begin to see a bigger pattern and you get this sort of feeling that you're onto something and you start to sort of collect more and more material and, you know, it's a really nice feeling. And I mean, I know everybody, every researcher know this feeling that you sort of, you know that you're onto something. And now, well, yeah, so people have begun to refer to this as Larson's law or Larson's rule sometimes. And it's about um, the Boltoslavic accentuation. We'll see if it sticks. But there is a Larson's law. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. You shouldn't be modest. <laughs> I have to. No, but yeah. But the point is that it's really, I mean, this way of working It's really fun. You have to collect all these examples and you sort of, you stay up all night, of course, and you, you look for them. And sometimes we think of it as a, a treasure hunt. It's like you're looking for these little treasures, these words, and you collect them and then you try to order them and try to see how they all fit. That's what we, what we do. But of course, I have a very romantic view of my studies. <laughs> And the treasure hunt leads you also to a map that you've been talking about, about the <laughs> migration. It's really true that what ancient DNA has given us is if we stay in our own field, we can collect all these treasures. But, but it's only now that we get a whole new map and new places to go look for other treasures. You know, it's really a treasure map. So we can continue the hunt in new places, ask new questions and really well put, actually. But it doesn't sound so different from other research where you look at a lot of material and you try to see a pattern and yeah. whatever, if it's language or if it's bioinformatics, I mean, it's yeah. sort of the same thing, it's right? It's the same feeling, the rush where you just, oh, <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows this feeling, of course. That's what drives us as researchers, right? This sounds really interesting. And now that we talk about the Indo-European language, um, of course, I'm very curious to hear. Is, do you have any idea what it could sound like? Do you have a text or something that you could read? <laughs> well, there are no texts <laughs> preserved, obviously. But I knew you would ask this, so I brought something. I brought something for you. It's a bit silly, but I have it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it. I sometimes get asked to translate some things into Indo-European for fun, right? And I was helping some uh, 
producers who were going to make a TV show for aimed at school children in, in Sweden a few years ago. Archeologens dotter, it was called. The main characters were transported back in time, and then they meet some Indo-European-speaking people. So I had to translate a short dialogue for them, and it was so much fun. And I think also it's very good that they produce this kind of shows for, for school children. My own daughter saw it at school as well, and, and uh, there was material for the teachers to use. And it's very important, of course, to make this kind of research easily accessible for young people. I'm also involved in the creation of an American video game, which has the same idea. You get transported back in time, and then you have to fight all kinds of European monsters from the mythologies, but also have to learn some language to be able to communicate with the gods and with some people to help you come back to, to modern day. So for educational purposes, I think this is very good, and I hope really that it can spark some interest in, in the younger generations. Okay, so let me read some dialogue that I translated. So in this little scene, the characters are doing some kind of ritual. They are invoking the Indo-European deity Varunos. And of course, Varunos is related to the Vedic and Hindu god Varuna. So the first thing they say is, what do you want? Quid well see? Nig nosko, I don't know. Dugaterum well me, I want a daughter. And then they decide to pray to the deity Varunos. So they say, I pray to the god Verinos, hear me, Father Verinos, Kludimoi, Putter, Verone, and then they count to five. Oinos, Duo, Treyes, Quetwar, Penque, and Dedomidunum, I offer you a gift. Degaterum, well, they say, may your daughter be born to me. Degaterum, moi gnetod, tod hestu. Let this be so. So that's a few words. I'm sure they sound vaguely familiar. To people at least to have some Latin and Greek and you know. But it's just for educational purposes and really no material has been preserved <laughs> from this time. But it's fun to sort of play a game and think about how could it have how could it have been then? Yeah. And it was really fun to see these actors in the Swedish TV show have they had to say these things and they had I recorded for them how to say it and then they studied it. I didn't meet them, they just studied and then I saw the final result. It was really funny to see them acting out Proto-European dialogues. Yeah. And I think this idea with time traveling is also very attractive, makes it very exciting. and It comes alive, yeah. We have been talking a lot about DNA and ancient uh, genomics. I think it came quite natural to you that you saw this is happening and this I can use in my own research, but there might be other areas that could be very useful to yeah. you, but you don't even know they exist. Yeah, I don't know what they can do, right? I have some examples of that. Well, there are several disciplines, of course, that could be relevant for us. Statistical modeling of all kinds of things, for example, and combining ancient DNA with different kinds of modeling, like this vegetation study that we talked about, and also climate change. There's a lot going on there with how we now know much more about how climate has changed during prehistoric times and that has of course affected people for example this in Norse mythology there's the concept of the fimble winter which is this horrible winter that precedes Ragnarök the end of the world and it's described in the poetic Edda uh, as three consecutive winters with no summer between them so it's horrible <laughs> and it's possible probably it seems possible to link this mythological story to the actual drop an actual drop in in the temperature that can be shown to have occurred in the period 536 to 550 AD, all over the northern hemisphere, for example. 
So there's that sort of thing. And then we were talking about this testing parchment where they now can extract ancient DNA from the animal skin that was used as parchment for the Dead Sea Scrolls. That can then help to piece together texts and, you know, because these texts have been scattered and it's hard to... It's really one big puzzle, right? So, And then recently I've been thinking a lot about um, diseases and pandemics, of course, <laughs> plagues, and how they can be really life-changing for the people like we have seen now in 2020, right? No, but this is also an area where the research in ancient DNA has given us something to think about because one really interesting thing is the discovery of the oldest evidence of the plague bacterium. So they could show that the plague bacterium probably existed in parts of the Eurasian population for 3,000 years before the first historically recorded outbreak of a disease. And they could also identify changes in the bacterial inheritance, which then seems to have made it increasingly deadly. So it seems like the prehistoric migration from the steppes were an early contributing cause of the spread of the plague bacteria. So the plague and migration seems to have moved hand in hand. But the evidence from ancient DNA is still relatively scarce in this case, we must say, and sort of, but there's a strong indication. And this is an unexpected factor, right? Because this is something that could really help explain how and why the people could expand so rapidly and over such a large area. And of course, if we think about the Europeans again arriving at the American continent, this was also a case where Europeans brought with them a lot of diseases and where the native peoples of America, they had no immunity to these things. And then that led to a huge decrease in the original population. So it might be a comparable scenario. But this is like one of these really unexpected findings. And it really fits into the bigger picture as well. So there are all, all kinds of things. I have to read so many interesting articles from other disciplines right now. Actually, I have to say, as a modern scholar today, we do this all the time. We have to do this. We have to read things. It's, it's really good to challenge your way of thinking. So one very important part is obviously that you talk to each other and learn new things. Another one is outreach to a broader audience. Can you tell us a little bit more about that part of the project? Yeah, so, so to do this, <laughs> we have uh, teamed up with the Swedish author and uh, science journalist Karin Boyce. So she has a really a genuine interest in this kind of research, and she's the author of the book My European Family, The First 54,000 Years, which is a very well-researched book, and it has become very popular as well. So we're very happy to have her on board, especially because things are moving really fast, and there's big interest in these topics. And we want to make our research, of course, accessible to everyone. So it's really important to me that we reach a wider audience as well. Why is that so important to you? Because there's a big interest in these things. And because there's also a lot of misconceptions about genetic studies and, and what they can tell us about well, all these things. So I want to make sure that we communicate what we know and reach a wider audience with this with the actual research and not all these ideas and misconceptions and, and all these things. Um, so so that's, that's why it's important to me. But it's also difficult, of course. So it's a learning process for all of us, you know. But I would rather do this than to just stay with the predictable things and never be challenged somehow. 
if we want to move forward, we have to leave the comfort of our own disciplines where we know everything and we know how things are done. Then we have to let the research questions guide us rather than the other way around. Not just do what we know that can't be done, but to do something new. Thank you very much, Jenny, for joining SCUS Talks and for letting us know more about the LAMP project. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to SCUS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and would be more than happy if you could help us spread the news about this podcast. You can find SCUS Talks on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. There you can also listen to the previous episodes, which are themed around the current coronavirus pandemic. During this fall, we will release more episodes about the study of language, and later on also about diversity. Bye for now!